Jordan Peterson has called for a need to rediscover the spirit of the Father. Many have been inspired to embark on their own hero's journey to set their life in order. But how do we balance order and chaos to live a life of meaning? What does it actually mean to be surrendered to God? And how do we root ourselves to stable ground as we witness the re-enchantment of reality? At Manifesto, we're engaged on a mission to rediscover and understand manhood, and from this foundation to create a dynamic and thriving community. My name's Paul, welcome to Manifesto. I was hired by the Stockholm School of Economics in 1998 to basically become an internet sociologist. Like, there's this huge new phenomenon called the internet, it's eating everything, it's gonna eat the world, and we know nothing about it. So let's say, which is like the ultimate challenge. It's just like, oh, me, you mean it's like the Wild West? Nobody knows anything. And then I discovered early on working on my first book, which came out in the year 2000, The Netocrats. Um, I write with John Sedeckvist, my, my excellent co-writer. He's everything I'm not. He'd be like the perfect team. Imagine a man who likes to be around women all the time rather than men and monks, and who's married and has little kids and lives in a big villa in Italy and thinks life is fine. Okay, perfect combination with me. He's the total opposite of me. So we, we, we're working on our fifth book together, and that's the one I want to talk about today. So, but anyway, when I wrote the, we wrote the first book, we discovered that we actually have to invent the very concept of what the internet is, because if we use old concepts, we're going to end up in the wrong place. And then you go from sociology to philosophy, because philosophy is the art of inventing concepts to try to understand the world better. You could think of it as the poet and the philosopher are two evil twins. They can't live it without each other, and they still hate each other at the same time. Because the poet is the guy who loves to make the world more complicated than it is. You know, It's like, oh, that's easy. Let's throw 500,000 words on it and make it really complex and un understandable and really ambivalent, right? That's the poet. If you read poetry, you really like it. How rich the world has become, you know? My simple little life is suddenly so important, right? That's poetry. So that's poetry. The opposite of that is the philosopher. Philosopher is the nerd with words who thinks that he can nail the world with words. Of course, it's vain. It's impossible. You can't nail the world with words, but a philosopher tries. It's just like, no, I'm really going to understand quantum physics, and I'm going to use words to do it, and I'm going to kill old words and get new words in there, and maybe then I can nail it, right? Well, not even mathematicians can nail the world, so it's even more impossible with words. So it's a really vain exercise, which is wonderful. I love doing it. I can never succeed in my work. <laughs> it's impossible. I can just fail less than other philosophers do. And we're going to talk a lot about the tribe and our social identities today. And the, the philosopher also has another, another, another interesting aspect of being a philosopher. You know, I'm the guy who likes to be at the further outskirts of the tribe. I'm not involved with the intrigues at the center, right? You're going to discover I'm like, I'm like a field priest. You're going to go into, you look, I'm really skinny. I'm not a much of a warrior, but I'm great with taking warriors to confession booths. And when I joined the military and I loved it, they just said, no, no, you're too weak, but we're still going to put you in the Navy, but as a strategist with a map. <laughs> so you're like, you count all the resources we have left, and you know how many guys are going to die here, and then you count exactly how we're going to attack the next thing. Yeah, perfect for me, perfect for me. So, so the philosopher really is the guy, you know, imagine you go to a village, and you got this sort of little stuck-up guy who's a bit up to himself. He thinks he's dead important. Like, when you're young, you always are. Like, you're a young man, you're narcissistic. It's just like, yeah, I'm going to be really important. So he's the guy who says to everybody in the village, 
I'm, I don't like being here. I'm too superior to you. So I'm going to go out in the forest and I'm going to sit on one of those pillars and I'm going to sit there for seven years and meditate and look at who I am. Now, what do you tell the guy who does that? You say, oh, that's perfectly fine. We need somebody to go out in the forest and sit on the pillar for seven years. But you're not really leaving the tribe because you're sitting there for seven years staring at us to get back in and say, this is what you see. You can never leave the tribe. Nobody ever does. So the philosopher is the guy who really, in a sort of sense, walks as far away as you can possibly get from the tribe to get the biggest possible perspective. That means if there's another guy behind me, I'm no longer the philosopher. He beats the shit out of me. He's better than I am. Because it's the guy who manages to go as far away as possible who is the philosopher. That means my perspective is I start with the universe itself. It's like the biggest possible perspective you can have. And, and then try to know what's going on. And the point with doing that is that, one, you see connections that nobody else sees. Oh, that's connected with that. And that's connected with that. And that's over there is a great metaphor we can use here for storytelling. So that is what philosophers try to do. And of course, there's another good point to that. The philosophers are like, you know, there's a reason why the celibacy involved with priesthood. Essentially, I'm sort of supposed to cut my dick off, meaning if I cut my dick off, it means I'm not going to have any children around that can inherit something, meaning that I can go straight into the hierarchy, whatever I want to, and talk to anybody in there because I'm not competing with them. I'm not going to have children. That's the point of celibacy. And the prophet is a priestly role. I mean, the philosopher is a, a priestly role in that sense. So you don't want to be involved with intrigues. And I hate intrigues, by the way. But I love to get inside the intrigues, expose them. Ha ha, this is how dirty you guys are, and then leave. <laughs> so now you know what a philosopher is, essentially, I hope. Yeah, good. So uh, we're working on our fifth book at the moment. And, and we do, this is a gifting economy because this is like burner culture here at the note. And we brought some copies of, Peter and I brought some copies from there. All right. Oh, I'm that nasty. Okay. <laughs> I only got drunk last night. I didn't lick pussy. There you go. Um, there you go. Yeah, I'm a closet heterosexual now, you know. <laughs> um, don't tell anybody. Uh, this is the latest book you wrote, and this is the book actually that's part of the foundation for this place. There's a theory on how you can construct a religion in the 21st century. So if you don't want to go back to Christianity or Zoroastrianism, which I converted to, or Buddhism, whatever you think, yeah, get rid of all the oldisms. Let's construct something new. Thomas talked about it yesterday. Construct something new from scratch. And Whitehead is all over the place in this book. If you heard Thomas' presentation about Whitehead yesterday, okay, there's a lot of Nietzsche and a lot of Whitehead in this book. So it's, it's an idea of how you can actually construct a religion. There are actually four ways to do a credible religion. So basically, I can go into the streets of Stockholm and meet a really aggressive atheist who you know, was exposed to a priest pedophile when he was a kid, and he hates religion, right? And I can just convince him in like two minutes, no, you've got to go religious. Here's a religion for you. <laughs> Why would history end with atheism? That's just a lack of imagination. Why would it end with the idea that, well, God does not exist? Well, when I hear somebody say something doesn't exist, well, do you want it to exist? Yeah, I would like God to exist. Who wouldn't? But, you know, he doesn't exist. Well, then build God. It's called artificial intelligence. You know, it doesn't take much imagination to do that, does it? Just you need, you need to understand that history moves on all the time. So that's that book. We have some free copies of it, and we're going to donate to the node. But if you grab a copy here later, if you want, I, I'm not offended if you don't. The thing about being a writer is you write the book for yourself, and you don't care if a single fucking person on the planet reads it. Otherwise, you're compromising on the quality of the book, and I don't want to do that. So if you want to use it for toilet paper or read it or whatever you want to do, there are a few copies here. And a few Swedish copies of Kroppsmaskinerna, which is the easiest of our books to get into our philosophy. It's essentially a book on how you kill your ego completely. You don't have one, you see. <laughs> so 
What we're going to do today, though, we're writing a book right now. Um, it was kind of weird. I was, I was on a podcast with an American guy a year ago talking about Barton and Soderquist's next adventures, and he'd read the Synthesis book, and he thought it was great. And he said, you never thought technology guys like you would be interested in theology, and you, you merge technology with theology, which is an interesting combination. And I was talking to him, and then I said, you know, the funny thing is this one. The Synthesis book really is a very hopeful book. It does say that we can have a religion we can believe in that can connect us. This note here is evidence of it. You can be an aggressive atheist and still have a church you go to at 11 o'clock on Sundays and find a community. You just have it based on another story that is religious and spiritual but actually works for you. So it's funny, I say, because when I, when I give a speech, I know pedagogically speaking, I should get up on the stage and throw a hammer into everybody's head so they have no self-confidence left and they're shattered. And then I rebuild them. And then I leave them with a little hope when I walk off the stage. Right? You can make it. You might not die. You know? That's how you do when you give a speech. You have to completely wipe out people's naivety, but you have the obligation to build on the capacity of the people you're talking to so they can go off and do something else, like we're doing today. You're going to go home and start men's groups and do rites of passages. And you can do that. Perfectly capable of doing that. But you end up there when you give a speech. So, and I said, Joseph, this guy interviewed, said, it's really weird because Soderquist and I are probably working on some new trilogy. We're not aware of it yet. The first three books became a trilogy eventually. And I said, the fourth book we released is the Synthesis book. The, the fourth book, the Synthesis book, is a hopeful book. And now, with the fifth book, the one we worked on for the past four years, we're going really deep and dark. The new book we're writing is called Digital Libido, Sex, Power, and Violence in the Network Society. And it's a nightmarish book. We're not having much hope for the 21st century of this book. We're looking at the world. We're building the new book on Sigmund Freud. You know Freud, right? He invented psychoanalysis. But Freud was really at its most interesting when he was old. I'm not a big fan of young genius philosophers. They're usually crappy. Heidegger and Wittgenstein regretted everything they wrote when they were young the rest of their lives. And it's only these old, grumpy men that are really, really good. <laughs> Wittgenstein was brilliant when he was old, and he hated the young Wittgenstein. And the old Heidegger, he, had, you know, he wrote a book about Nietzsche in 1963, and he said, I don't regret being an Nazi, and by the way, I'm going to write a book on Nietzsche because he's even better than I am. Well, that's Heidegger at his best, right? So I, I haven't written my best book yet by far. I'm going to be at least 88 when I start doing that. So the older and grumpier a man is, the probably better a thinker is. So, so I said, it's really weird. We've written the synthesis book and it's hopeful, and now we're going into writing a really dark book. Because Sigmund Freud, in 1930, Freud completely forgot about the single individual at the end of his life. The old Freud hated just about everything about human beings. But he was interested in the masses. He was interested in society as a whole. He basically went from psychoanalysis to social analysis. He went into an art, an art form of describing society and he found it to be incredibly dysfunctional. And this is the thing, in 1930, Freud published a book called Civilization and Its Discontents. And in this book, he's basically claiming we're totally fucked up because the civilization we created is not for us, and we can't make sense of it. And he basically prophesied and said the world is going down. And this was in 1930, and Freud at least died in 1938 not to see his prophecy come true, because in 1939, the Second World War started, and Freud essentially said, 
We're going to have one guy on one side who read Rousseau and loves Rousseau, which is Hitler. We're going to have another guy on the other side who read Rousseau and loves Rousseau. Rousseau is my big enemy, you see. And Rousseau and he's Stalin. And they're together going to murder some 60 or 70 million people. And then Mao Zedong is going to do the same thing in Asia. We're going to get rid of 100 million innocent people. Because we don't know what we're doing. And we tend to forget this is only like 80 years ago. And what we're essentially saying, what, what Sadek is now doing, we're revisiting Freud. To try to understand what's going on inside, I think we have to go into the world of psychoanalysis and then apply it on society as a whole. It's like you do psychoanalysis on society as a whole to find out what is the pathology here, what is wrong with the society. Why don't we get it? So it's a really, really dark book in that sense. And it, it basically describes people sitting in front of computer screens, throwing all kinds of shit out there that nobody cares about. We call it interpassivity. It's not interactivity. You know, girls have Instagram. 80% of the world's Instagram accounts are run by girls. And they think they're successful because they have social media. And on Instagram, they put pictures of cats and babies with diapers. Except they all do that. So nobody's looking at their pictures. So the world is full of people today who throw out crappy self-made media that nobody cares about. What do you think people are going to do when they find out nobody cares about all the work they put into this crap? They're going to hate themselves and everything. We promised them that the internet was going to be this opportunity where everybody's being seen and heard. It's a very feminine promise. It's a daycare center type of promise. It's like, oh, we have little babies in here. Has everybody in here been seen and heard? It doesn't matter what you say. It's all about you being seen and heard. And that's essentially what society, how it operates today. Society is us stuck to a, somehow a kind of spiritual mother's body. And this mother's body has a big tit and we want to suck this tit because it takes no effort. There's milk. Some miraculous milk is produced at all times. We don't have to make an effort. It's called the nanny state. And then in, together with the nanny state, we also have consumer society. You know, every time I see a magazine write about the obesity epidemic, I'm like, it's not a fucking epidemic. It's an infantilization epidemic. Because a person who eats all the time is just a baby. A grown-up person says, I've eaten enough. I've stopped eating when you're full. The only person that eats constantly is somebody who's frustrated, meaning you're infantilized. You're not a grown-up. You're not a man. You're not a woman. You're a kid. So the world is full of 40-year-old kids and big, fat bodies who blame everybody else for being fat. They're confused. So, so we went into the dark with this book. But what I'm going to do today, I'm also going to use the constructive part of the book, a model that I think we can use and work with, especially in men's work and eventually women's work too. And this model, I'm finally going to use the right word, it's called tribal mapping. Okay, before we go into that, before we go into what tribal mapping is, we have to agree on how we're going to do this mapping. And we're going to make it as simple as possible because it's quickly going to get very complex. So we're just going to use two ingredients. We're going to use human beings, we call them humans, and we're going to use technology. And we're going to use the human being as the constant, and we're going to use technology as the variable. What does this mean? We human beings do not change. Well, we change over long, 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 long periods of time. But we've only had civilization for at the most 5,000 years. Ironically, it's been 5,000 years in Iraq. And then it's been about 30 years in New Guinea or something like that. But civilization is not very old. So the 5,000 years we at most have been civilized, we haven't changed. Evolutionary change in human beings takes way more than 5,000 years. 
That's good for our studies because it means we can define that we are the constant. We don't change. We're too stupid to change. You know? And it's not like our breeding methods are really helping much. You know? The vast majority of people who fuck each other, children, are the most stupidest people we could find. It's just, it's just yeah, two, two ugly, stupid people, nothing better to do. They have babies and then we breed like that. It's, just, it's not like we figured out that we should sort of breed in a clever way with the way we do animals. No, no, no. We just breed like wildfire and we have children everywhere. And, and, you know, we put plastic and stuff in them these days and call them cyborgs or whatever because they're too stupid to be human. I don't know, but, you know, it's, it's, it's like we, we at least we are at best constant. We probably have gotten worse, but we're at best constant. The great thing with that is that if you can define what it means to be human in a deep, deep sense, that could help. And then we can define everything else around us as technology because everything that has changed, civilization is a civilization of technologies. Everything that has changed. If you look around yourself right now, anything around you in your life world that is different from what it was like 4,000 years ago is technological. And technology is an incredibly masculine thing. <laughs> men are criminals too, way more than men, but also men love to build stuff. Technological is a phallic exercise. It has to do with the dick. So, but technology is what has changed. So humans are the same technology as all the change. Meaning if there is a radical change of any way, if something is changing in society, it is bound to have started as a technological disruption. We like to think that we change the world with our ideas. Fuck no. We only react to our surroundings. That's how we survive. So that means if there is a genuine change, if, if our society is different today from, say, it was 400 years ago, it is because technological change has forced that change. There's a technological disruption first. That technological disruption forces us to rethink the world and probably forces us to re-storytell, meaning our storytelling has to change. Like with synthism, you're attempting basically to give people a credible religion for the 21st century, recognizing that religion is a good thing, but the religions we have available to us are not up to scratch. So you either t try to reform them, which is incredibly heavy. You know, you're always going to have some Christian who says homosexuals should die because it's written somewhere in the Bible. Or else you maybe say, well, let's have a homo-friendly religion if you want that, and then we have to start fresh. It's, it's, it, you could always argue which is the best option. You know, Protestantism it was keeping Christianity, getting it adjusted to the printing press. So then you have to have a direct relationship between the individual and God. Merge. And they have a new religion. So we need to think that we need new storytelling that makes sense to us today if the old storytelling isn't working, because storytelling is the way we orientate ourselves in the world. It's also what unifies us in the tribe. So if we have a community, we have to be shared storytelling. In the original tribe, it's probably the shamans who sat down with the matriarch and the patriarch and agreed in the afternoon what kind of storytelling they were going to deliver in the evening, because the storytelling had to be about, we are here, we are united, we're going to get from A to B. And we're all going to survive doing it. So, so it helps if human beings can be identified as a constant. Now, wait a second. If we haven't changed the last 4,000 years, in what kind of environment were we shaped as human beings? In what kind of environment was Homo sapiens developed in the original tribe? Because we spent hundreds of thousands of years living in the original tribe. And it was nomadic. And looking at data from contemporary human beings, the vast majority of people have no more than 200 Facebook friends. And most of those Facebook friends are of their own gender and live in the same neighborhood that they live in because people just lack imagination to go outside of that little norm. And they're the new underclass. You know, people that have 5,000 Facebook friends who live around the world are clever. People that have 200 Facebook friends just go to the biological instinct and they're happy with that. They live within the death drive, as Freud says. They have no imagination. They want to minimize life as long as they live. 
Life is a horrible thing to go through. So let's minimize its activity and just, you know, move as little as possible until I finally die. <laughs> That's how the vast majority of people live their lives. It's called the death drive. Like, if I died, that'd be nice. Because you know? <laughs> I'm living like if I was dead. So the problem is this, though. If you, if you go through the entire history, written history, what we call history itself, you discover that the nomadic tribe is prehistoric or primitive in its original sense. That means we don't have any written records of what the nomadic tribe were up to because they didn't have written language. The first thing we did when we had written language is that we started organizing society because we had a new communication tool. We could store information outside of our own heads. We could make contracts between each other. We could have diaries, you know, the grains have stored down here, so we could start farming. We could, have, we could own land because with contracts we can own stuff. And we could start investing in things. You cannot have civilization without written language. That's impossible. There's not a single example of a functioning village, a permanent settlement anywhere on the planet without written language first. Because the complexity it takes to have, a to have a permanent settlement means you have to have written language first. It's impossible as long as you only speak. And the nomadic tribe only had spoken language. It only had spoken language. It was on the move constantly. And because it didn't write anything down, we don't have a written record of how it perceived itself. Once we have written records and storytelling, they're all about a permanent settlement that exists already. And if you go back to the original Iranian or Indian scriptures that are 4,000 years old, the main theme of those stories was that there are people who are civilized and they live in a permanent settlement, and then there's stupid nomads that come and attack us and steal our shit all the time just because they got horses. And they're called Mongols or Tatars or something like that, right? So civilization essentially it starts with the storytelling about civilization must be protected. We are men. We stand around civilization. We protect it and provide for it because at any given time, the stupid nomads can come riding on their horses and they kill us all if, we don't, if we're not watchful. Those are the first stories written down 4,000 years ago. So there were a paradigm shift. There were stories about a paradigm shift moving from nomadism to permanent settlement when, of course, those who wrote those stories had to celebrate the permanent settlement because they all lived there themselves. There were no nomads who could write the opposite story. There were no nomads who could say that, oh, we're great guys, we ride horses, we take whatever we want and fuck any woman we like and we're happy. You don't see that story anywhere because the guys who could write wouldn't write that story. That's 4,000 years ago. And you see the paradigm shift and the advantage of having written language and using it for storytelling. Monotheistic religion starts there. Polytheistic religion also starts there too. It's actually just two levels of the same thing. Whenever people call Hinduism polytheistic and say that Christianity is monotheistic, it's like, how about the saints in Christianity? Aren't they gods? And about Hinduism, don't the mystics just worship the big Brahman and say everything else is an illusion? It's the same type of religion. You have one field with only one god in it, the phallic field, and then you have what we call the magical field, which loads of gods. That's how women prefer the world. They love tiny little gods, lots of lesser gods, for different purposes. So that's OK. It's two different levels. So we have then, over the last few hundred years, doing ethnology and archaeology, basically agreed on that we'll never find out how the original nomadic tribe worked. There's no written record of it, and it was on the move. Imagine being an archaeologist looking for remnants of the original nomadic tribe. You don't find it anywhere. Oh, I found something here in Siberia, but nothing else. Oh, yeah, they moved the next day. And we basically accepted we'll never find that out. The biggest mystery in history production is the fact that where we all came from, 
what we all belong to, where our genes were shaped, what we're still looking for, according to Freud, we cannot find. And we accepted that, and Freud accepted that in 1930. Enter modern data. When I started working with Google and Facebook on what we could do with data, they want to extract value out of the data. Essentially what Google and Facebook want to do is that they want all of you to open your smartphone and the smartphone to tell you what you want next. And because human beings are incredibly predictable and very simple, they figured out it takes about 300 data points from Facebook about a human being to know more about that human being than that human being knows about himself. <laughs> and since there are billions of data pods about every human being on the planet, they're already moving there. There's still kind of, if you start the smartphone today, it's still like, yeah, Alexander, your ass is here in Noden, Stockholm. Uh, close to here are 20 restaurants. Which ones do you want? Which one do you want to pick? But really, Google could already said that. Instead of providing you with 20 restaurants, we know your budget, we know your taste, we know what dirty old men are 57 years old like when they go and eat. So here's the restaurant you want, and by the way, the table is booked. Just get your ass over. <laughs> We've already closed that. That's what Google and Facebook want to do with the data. This is what data is the biggest thing today. Data is the new capital. Whoever has possession of data and can interpret data is going to rule the world. And we've written four books about that already. So, but essentially, that's where Google and Facebook want to go. Now, if they work with somebody like me to provide them with that model to be that evil, because it's evil, but I'm happy to work for evil guys. I don't mind if it changes the world. I, at the end of the day, I mean, I will be one of those people who, who just turns on my smartphone and it says, you want this now, don't you? And I say, yeah, I do, I do. I'll go do it. And when I walk off to do it, the smartphone says, and then you want this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. How do you know? How do you know? I can turn this off. And then it's like, I still have this idea in my mind that the nuclear family that was invented in Western Europe in 1830, because it's only from the 1830s, the fact that you should find a girl and fall in love with her and live with her the rest of your life and ignore your, your brothers, you know? That idea, raising a nuclear family, is a very modern invention. Doesn't exist in most cultures. Doesn't make much sense to most people, but we, we're stuck with the idea that this is the real thing. So I'm gonna find the real girlfriend. And suddenly, the smartphone helps me into a nightclub. And it's not even a nightclub, it's actually a scrubby restaurant. It's a Tuesday afternoon, but still, the smartphone, I Tinder in the smartphone on the app. And, and suddenly, the smartphone says, By the way, there are 300 people in this room who want to have sex with you right now. Who are you gonna start with? Here's a map of the toilets. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye, nuclear family. You see how technology changed our world. Taps right into who we are. So that's, that's the evil plan of these empires, Google, Facebook, and Amazon, basically to control our minds. And they will, because we, they, they know our minds better than we do. Why would you sit there and speculate? What do I want to do today? Are you stupid? Turn on your fucking smartphone. You'll find out. <laughs> so that's what they want to do. Then they ask me, and I say, OK, I want to do a trade with you. If I'm going to work with you to figure out what you're going to use this data for, and be your cultural engineer, I want to have access to the data and do something else. And then I discovered something amazing. This was four years ago. Wait a second, if we got all this data about contemporary human beings, and the great thing about data is that data is like a really nasty girlfriend. Women know that we guys talk a lot of bullshit, so they just look at our behavior, which is very clever. Learn from the women when they're smart. Okay, that's very, very clever. It's not what you say that counts, it's what you do. You didn't give me flowers. You don't love me. <laughs> because you probably don't love her. You have other priorities, right? She exposed you. So behavior is incredibly honest. And that's what data is. So these smartphones are on all the time, and we all carry them with us, and we all use our laptops and things, and we leave data behind us all the time. And all you need to do is basically say that, okay, we got 20,000 57-year-old nutcase philosopher guys here, and because we know what they want, and they're all the same, because they're all predictable, we can figure out what they all want next. And we have 58-year-olds and 59-year-olds in the data too, so we know what they want next year too. 
and you figure that out. Okay, but if we register everybody's behavior, that means we're going to know absolutely everything about human beings within the next five to ten years. There will be no secrets left. It's wonderful, and it's called data anthropology. And we have some friends in America I'm working with at the moment. One of the first books that came out on the series is a book called Everybody Lies. Apologies, written by a friend of ours, David Lewitt. And it, it's really great because David just looked through the facts and said, why don't we take some myths about how men and women operate and then apply them on the data? You know, one of the wonderful things he discovered was that women love violent porn. <laughs> we had no idea. Women consume, on average, twice as much violent porn as men do. You should listen to Thomas yesterday about fucking women, probably. Because <laughs> that, that's one of the it, it, undisputable facts. I mean, the feminists are up in arms about this. And he's like, no, that cannot be true. It is true. Statistical truth. We've checked millions of women's accounts, and they watch lots of porn, and they watch violent porn more than men do. And they love it. They return to it, they consume it again and again in secret. So it's the truth. So we're going to have all these factual truths about human beings, about men and women, and, and a lot of myths about how women and men operate are going to be killed. Now, I love this because I love truth. And I want to get at the original nomadic tribe because I want to know about human beings. I, I understood early on that if my analysis is always humans and technology, it is the human part that's the most important to learn. Because if you really could learn psychology and social psychology, half the work's done and you don't have to relearn it. The hopeless thing with technology is that it changes so fast and all the time, so you have to relearn it constantly. If you're going to do proper analysis of the world today, learn about human beings. You learn psychology, you learn sociology, but then you can go into data, into data anthropology, and then we can really learn what human beings function. So that's like one of the good or bad news, depending on your perspective. But in the next 10 years, we're going to know everything about human beings. One idea after the next is going to be tried through data. So this is what scientists want to do with the data. So we have data anthropology here. Now, isn't this wonderful? Because if we can study everything human beings do, and human beings are the same that they were 4,000 years ago, and they don't know they're being washed. The great thing about data is that you don't really want the data when somebody knows they're giving away data. Because as soon as somebody knows they're being observed, they start behaving theatrically. Oh, I'm being observed. <laughs> I'm being studied. Okay. All nature in display. No, you want, like girls do, they, they love private detectives and they love cameras. And they love to watch you guys to see you make fools of yourself when you don't know you're being watched. So the honest, people are really honest when they know they're not being observed. And that's a great thing with data. You don't even know that your smartphone is on all the time. You don't even know these guys have absolute track records of where your body is at all times. Which for me is wonderful because what I then would see stepping out of the data that I'm interested in it's the return of the original tribe. Because what human beings do, whenever they have an option to do something, is they're very, very likely to do behavior they would have done 4,000 years ago in the tribe. They get 200 Facebook friends, and then they stop adding people. That's what the vast majority of people do. What does that say? What would have been the size of the original tribe? 200. You get the idea? It's mind-boggling. Because what we're going to discover in the data is we're going to discover the return of the tribe. And I mean the return of the tribe in the sense that we see people as tribal human beings. Now, what are we up against? Well, we're not up against Christianity. I don't have a problem with all these old monotheism. We're up against a religion called individualism. And this religion was invented in 1637 by a French autistic guy named René Descartes. <laughs> it's funny that we trusted a French autist for a new religion, but we did. 
Uh, René Descartes uh, wrote the world's most famous tweet ever. It's called, I think, therefore I am. Sorry, Muhammad, but this tweet is more widespread than Allah is the only God and Muhammad is his prophet. This is the most spread tweet ever. I think, therefore I am. Now, I'll teach you one thing about metaphysics, and I love metaphysics. Metaphysics is the ultimate form of storytelling. It's the form of storytelling that unites the entire society. And you're going to learn this one thing about metaphysics. Never build metaphysics on something that can be tested. I mean, don't build it on a truth. Because if it can't be tested, it loses its glamour. It loses its attraction. No, always build metaphysics on something that cannot be tested. So people can believe in it undisturbedly. Okay? So, for example, God. An amazing innovation. An old man sitting with a big dick, grumpy on a cloud, jerking off, being bored all the time. <laughs> Perfect. You cannot go above the clouds. It wasn't until 1958 that the Russian cosmonaut Gagarin, for the first time, became the first human being who managed to get in the rocket above the clouds. It took until 1958 until finally human beings got somebody above the clouds. And the first thing Gagarin reported down to Earth was that, I'm above the clouds and there's no God here. That was literally the first thing he said. He was a Russian communist atheist. <laughs> and you know how the Catholic Church responded? Oh, he's further away. <laughs> and they've moved him ever since. And, and this is the thing, that, that, that metaphysical story about the phallic God, which we men actually love, we love phallic gods more than anything because obviously the biggest dick in the world is God. Or the biggest dick ever is the Messiah. We're waiting for the Messiah to come. That's like, we're waiting for a big dick to come and save us, right? It, it's very sexual, everything. I'm Freudian, remember that. So, so we, we, we would regret that. So we kept God, but how long did we keep God? We kept God as long as we had written language and written records and we lived in villages and we had a nobility that owned land. So they owned land, they owned the asset. They were one part of the power structure. Then we have an imaginary power, the king who was inherited or you know, appointed. And then we had a, a symbolic power, those who produced the truth. It was the church. So you would go to church on Sundays at 11 o'clock and the priest would tell you, you all have to go back to the fields and work for the nobility for slave money for six more days before you return here next Sunday and sing another boring song again. But during these six days, you're going to work hard in the fields for nothing. And the reward you're going to get is you're going to go to heaven. Great. Nobody's going to charge you for that, right? Because people die and go to heaven. So nobody's going to return from heaven and say there's no heaven. Wonderful. Metaphysics always been like that. And that worked as long as we had to force people to go out in the fields. But when the printing press came along, we built a whole new paradigm. With the printing press, it moved people from villages into cities. And suddenly we have to teach them how to read and write and count, which has now become affordable. So we can turn them into factory workers, because factory workers are 10 times more productive than people who work in farms. So we invent modern society. But then we cannot have churches any longer at 11 o'clock that proclaim that God is the center of the universe. We need new religion. So where is an idea that pops up from out of nowhere where some stupid autistic guy is having a fancy idea, you know, that we can just jump onto? Well, this kickstarts the European Enlightenment that happens in 1637, right between the printing press, which was in 1450, which was the real revolution, and what we mistakenly called the French Revolution in 1789. The French Revolution was not a revolution. It was a symptom of the revolution. The revolution happened here. It's always technological disruption. But between these two dates, we have this innovation. No, Descartes didn't say that God was dead. Nietzsche said that in the 19th century. He couldn't say that because the Catholic Church was highly influential and Descartes loved to keep his head on his body. Now, how do you, you ask women again, women are wise, 
How do you get rid of somebody you cannot kill? How do you get rid of somebody you cannot kill? You put them to sleep. That's what Descartes did. This was the first time ever that somebody found it in new metaphysics where God wasn't the starting point. Up until Descartes in 1637, it was unthinkable that he would start any form of storytelling with any other story. Then at first, it was God, and God turned chaos into order. That was the only storytelling that existed. Until this guy comes along and says, uh, actually, I don't know about God, but I know about me. So he, he, he just obliterated God, put him out of the picture, and said, I think, therefore, I am. He invented something brand new. And again, I told you, if you're going to do metaphysics, try to invent something that cannot be tested so that if people want to believe in it, they can believe in it. Descartes got the question in 1637. So where have you placed this mysterious I, this ego that is like infinite and whatever, and it's the same. It's like you're born with it, you die with it, you're this person, and everything is like belonging together. You're one solid, you have this solid idea of a spirit inside of you that's constantly the same thing. And Descartes said, oh, uh, I put him in a gland in the brain. Perfect. It's just like the God on the cloud. It's just like, imagine this is surgery in 1637. You're going to cut up somebody's neck, and you're going to go through all that and get all the nonsense out of their like, skin and blow and blood and things, and finally get into the gland, and into the gland, and in the gland there's nothing there, because by the time you get there, the guy's dead. So everybody could believe it. So people started believing they existed. And people who read books in Europe, Imagine you're sitting there in 1789 in Paris and you're reading a book. And not only were the books, Paris had in the 1780s become the first city in the world where over half the population could read and write. It was by far the most influential city on the planet. It was also the biggest, at least in Europe. So there were a lot of people sitting in Paris in 1789 reading books. And they were reading these books. And, and you know, you had the Encyclopédie. You had a book that contained all knowledge of all history from A to Z in one book. You had books that came out every day, full of gossip, you know, about the king and the queen and everything else you hated. And they were called tabloids. These were in every street corner in Paris. That's why they had the revolution, because you essentially had a new educated elite in the city, a bourgeoisie, who started factories and lived in cities. And they read tabloids, and they hated the kings and the queens and the nobility out in Versailles. And next to Paris, where these people are living, you have Versailles, which is a castle. And in this castle, you have 25,000 poofs who walk around all day long with smelling salts. And they're offended by the tonality and the etiquette of what they hear. Oh, I don't like that word. You said Negro. Ooh. Like the word. It's exactly like society today. Versailles back. We don't see it. We don't see it, right? So you had 25,000 people. None of them could read and write. They were just stupid nobility. And priests. Corrupt priests. Court priests get corrupt. Not field priests like me. Court priests get corrupted. And, of course, kings and queens. You had Marie Antoinette. And she was the queen, and she was a woman, and she was young, and she was beautiful, and everybody hates that, especially other women. And of course, in the tabloids in Paris, like, Marie Antoinette is young, she's beautiful, she's a woman, and she's Austrian, she's not French, and she eats cake for breakfast instead of baguettes. Let's kill her! So they took the guillotines out of her side and started chopping the heads of everybody. And when Marie Antoinette finally got into the guillotine and had her head chopped off, she had no idea what the tabloid was. This is what we're living today. This is the social justice warrior of today. This is the dominant mode in media today. I'm offended. I heard a word I didn't like. Tonality and etiquette instead of talking about substance. Real debate should be about substance. What is the real argument here? I don't care who said it. Somebody in the room came up with a great idea. Let's explore that idea. What counts is the value of the argument itself, the substance in a proper debate. And it should be at least between men. But contemporary discourse 
It's all about, oh, he said that word, I was offended. Now I'm a victim. Now you have to pay attention to me. And it's a competition towards the bottom. Because when you walk into a room, you have to make up your mind. You either have to go with Nietzsche or with Rousseau, the way I describe it. Rousseau essentially enters the room, and he was a really, really clever, great writer. He was sitting there during the French Revolution, and he jerked off next to the guillotine. Why do you think he did that? He was very clever, wrote excellent text, but he was ugly as hell and never got fucked. Ugly people are dangerous. Watch out. They don't have a sex life. So Rousseau was this guy, and he's an amazing thinker, but he's my enemy because Rousseau essentially says, if I enter a room with loads of people in it, I look for the biggest victim in the room, and then I celebrate that victim until somebody else says, oh, but I'm a bigger victim than the victim is. And then another person says, no, I'm the biggest victim. Oh, my gender is more victim than your gender. Oh, my skin color is more victim than your. Oh, my sexual orientation is more victim than you are. It's exactly outside of today. Now, what happens when everybody's a victim? It's a race towards the bottom. It's a death of civilization. It's the end. Of debates go on forever. Because every debate has this sort of daycare mentality about it. We cannot finish this debate and make a decision until everybody feels they've been seen and heard. Oh, you haven't been seen and heard enough. And you have not been seen and heard enough. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. It's called castration in the world of Freud. It's a society where decisions are not made any longer. Nobody builds a skyscraper. Nobody has a utopian vision for anything because we're now mediocre. We're going to stay mediocre. We're all going to stay in the same level. And it's a fight on who's the biggest victim in the room. Now, the other approach you can take is the Nietzschean approach. Actually, Marx is with Nietzsche on this one. I like them both. But Nietzsche essentially says that when I enter the room, I refuse to see the victims at all because I don't think it helps anybody that there's a victim, least of all the victim. As soon as you make yourself a victim, you become your own enemy. Every time that happens. So instead, I'm looking for who's the hero in the room, who's ahead of the game, who's learned to read, write, and count before anybody else so we can teach everybody to read, write, and count and make them powerful doing that. You know, how, who, who in this room has already created a little village so we don't have to run around looking for food all the time because we're producing food and create a village, which means we can have a much bigger population and you know, have a much better life. So, so, okay, who does that? Now, if you start looking for the hero in the room, you're also automatically obliged, ethically speaking, to say, if that is the hero in the room, we're going to try to lift everybody in the room up to that standard. That is a culture of empowerment. And that's what's lacking in contemporary society. The good parts in history have always been cultures of empowerment, where empowerment has been embraced. And people have believed that we're going to get up, we're going to lift ourselves, we're going to take our kids and stuff with us and lift ourselves to a higher goal, a higher standard than we have now. That's what civilization was built on. So having said that, what happened with individualism was this. Individualism was incredibly powerful as a new religion. But what is it that individualism teaches? Individualism teaches that we're essentially 7 billion people on this planet, and we're all totally isolated from one another, and we're in constant competition with one another, and we're all the same. None of which is true. So we hate it. But we believe in it. Because we've been taught this ideology for the past 400 years. And all the political ideologies, both socialism and liberalism and conservatism, are all based on, we have the best way to enhance the individual. So vote for us. And you can become an individual because you vote for us. Right? So all these ideologies essentially one of the same thing. It is individualism. And OK, if anything's going to be written in my grave, is that if Nietzsche killed God, this guy tried to kill the individual. Because that's the God I'm trying to kill. 
because I don't believe in digital art. I believe the individual was a good story to begin with. It was successful here, but it was successful because we colonized the world and plundered the world when we were individuals. There was always somebody who did suffer and were actual victims. I don't think you should be a victim anyway, but because it doesn't help you, but there were loads of victims and people killed. And after colonialism in the 20th century, we had Hitler and Stalin exposed to you, the victimhood culture on a massive scale. Hitler at least was consequent when he killed himself at the end and said, well, this is bound to happen anyway. He was always set to kill himself at the end. That's always what a victim does. A victim wants to drag you down with them in their own death. <laughs> they don't want an improvement because an improvement would hurt their victimhood and then they don't get detention. So what will happen is if individualism finally sort of implodes and it doesn't work any longer because a new medium is attacking it that requires a new attitude between human beings, that means individualism goes into top spin. What happens, for example, with monotheistic religion when you remove the fundaments for it, when people don't no longer believe in Islam or Christianity, they go fundamental about it. Fundamental Islam is a modern phenomenon, but it's a phenomenon because when you no longer believe in Allah, you go desperate about it and you think, if I blow up bombs, maybe I can still believe. Always fundamentalism happens like a supernova at the end of a curve of an ideology. And that's what we're seeing today. And that phenomenon is happening on a massive scale and it's called narcissism. So what is narcissism? Is narcissism a person obsessed with himself? Not necessarily. Narcissism is a compensation phenomenon. It is essentially a misunderstanding of what self-love is. How many of you in the room think that self-love is a feeling? Yes, feeling. You feel that you love yourself. Or how many people in the room think that, okay, and how many people in the room think that self-love is just a decision? You get it? You understand what it is? Wonderful. Because that probably proves you're not narcissistic. Because narcissism essentially, tragically, starts with a misunderstanding of what self-love is. We all want to love ourselves, don't we? Yes, we do. Why? Well, to begin with, if we don't love ourselves, we cannot accept that anybody else loves us either. Because what you do when you don't love yourself, you haven't understood what that is, you hate yourself. And if you hate yourself, you're gonna, gonna run around and try to make other people love you for you. But because you're not receptive to that, because there's nothing to base it on, when, you, when that love arrives, even if it is genuine love, you will not believe it. So you will hate yourself even more. That is contemporary society. It's full of it. In the new book, we're gonna call it hyper-narcissism. So we're going to say that essentially society is now stuck in a stage we call hyper-narcissism in the book. And you see it everywhere, this obsession with myself. Why am I not getting attention? Why am I not getting attention? Like little babies. Why am I not getting the tit? Why am I not getting attention? Why am I not getting attention? And all this is based on a tragical mistake. We write about the synthesis book in chapter 8. People don't understand self-love is nothing but radical self-acceptance. You don't have a choice whether you're going to love yourself or not. Take off all your clothes, stand naked, jerk off if you like, stand in front of a mirror, accept what you see. Ah, I look like an ugly, perverted, 57-year-old guy. Thank God there are perverts out there who want to have sex with me still. You know, accept it. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into, uh, is this worth loving? Or not? Oh, no, 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 don't even go there. I just accept what I see there. <laughs> Done. Self-love starts to operate. I don't have to walk around to get recognition from others to compensate for the fact that I don't love myself. So I can start to give. I can start to give instead because if you find out that's how it works. And I don't have to compensate for that. So the fact that a person takes a lot of attention to this might just be because they've got a great idea or they're a bit inspired and, you know, they like to get involved in something and, you know, get energy from people. No, a real narcissist is the person who compensates for their own lack of self-esteem and their own lack of self-acceptance by constantly irritating you with the things they throw at you. 
and it's full of it today. So this model no longer works. And why is that? Why did that happen? Well, we built, we built individuals on, on this structure. You had Paris here in 1789. What happened after Paris in 1789? It was a great chaos. Okay, look at, look at the relationship between human beings and technology. That has to be a dialectical relationship. So what happens is first there's a technological disruption that benefits some and it's really hurtful to others. The thing is, though, when we start operating human beings, we operate first of all through intuition, not through knowledge. We first make a decision based on intuition. Our intuition is great. It's like I don't have perfect information, but I use the information, knowledge I have, and I see what's going on. I have to make a quick decision, so I use intuition. So you use intuition first to then react to what's going on. But you don't understand what's going on, but you react through intuition. That means there then has to be a reaction to my intuitive reaction. And then we can start comprehending what's going on. We get the theory right. We have people who study what's going on in society, like the kind of work that I do right now. I start to nail the network society, try to describe it so people can start orientating themselves. So they don't have to use intuition. They can use knowledge about where they're heading. And only then can we get out of the chaos. That means we have four steps in any dialectical um, paradigm shift, which is the one we're going through at the moment. We're killing an old religion, we need a new one because something fundamental is going on. So first there's tech disruption. Then there has to be a new idea from out of somewhere. It can be completely ignored when it pops up. And usually it is because nobody thinks it's going to be a big thing. But it's ready and it's available and suddenly it starts sneaking into people's minds like Jordan Peterson, you know. Nobody knows about him, suddenly everybody knows about him. So because it just happened to be the right meme at the right time. And then there's a the great chaos not to be underrated, when people are confused but they behave according to the technological disruption, but they're not aware of it. And this is usually, and almost every time in history, a very bloody face. You've been warned, okay? And then comes order and chaos. And this is where we guys come in, because order and chaos is something we love. This is another word for order and chaos. Jordan Peterson is kind of, he's kind of meek when he says logos because I use the proper word, which is phallus. When Jordan Peterson says that you speak the truth at all times and says logos, it's just to flatter the Americans because they, they hate sexual terminology. But <laughs> essentially, you know, it's not about having logos, you know, it's about having a fucking dick. Okay. Bringing order in chaos, that, the symbol for that is phallus in, in the minds of human beings. The symbol of matrix, of course, birth and rebirth and circulation and the origin we come from where we return when we die. On the new book, Digital Liberty, we're not going to have a dick on the cover. We're going to have a beautiful female body with a big pussy and a womb looking right in, which is a mausoleum. It's a better picture of contemporary society. There's a lot of female imaginary, imaginary around. So, so I wish we could have a dick on the cover, but we can't because there are no dicks around. There are no messiahs around. There are no male leaders. We, we're meek and we're stupid and we, we, we don't live up to our promise. So anyway. This is how it works. So let's see how this worked here. You know, technological disruption. Printing press is one of the fourth biggest revolutions of all times. We have four big ones. Spoken language, written language, printed language, interactive language. They've all changed the world completely because they've added information on a massive scale. And information is power. The meme, that's Descartes, 1637, the kickstart of the Enlightenment. And then that was fulfilled by Immanuel Kant 150 years later during the French Revolution. Immanuel Kant, he was another nerd. He was sitting in Königsberg in Germany, never left the town. But he wrote fancifully about the French Revolution. He essentially said that, oh, I'm going to now finish off the individualism really defined as a proper metaphysical system. 
So he was the fulfillment of that. And of course, the great chaos starts in Paris in 1789. What happens in the streets? It gets bloody. And people are confused because they don't know what they're doing. So they start killing each other. And by the end of the 18th century, something happens in the year 1800. What happens? Okay. Normally, you want to be as close as possible to power. You want to be the son of an aristocrat or a king or maybe the bastard son of a priest. Okay? You want to be as close to you can as to the power. Except a paradigm shift. Because all the guys in power are going to have their heads chopped off. So you want to be as far as, far away as you can possibly be from, from, from the person. I'm going to get back to you, Pierre. You have to be as far as you possibly can from the center when that happens. So where do you find the guy who's the most underrated guy in Paris in 1789? Think this is France, now map France of you. You're as far away as you possibly can be from the poofs in, in Versailles with their smelling salts, okay? You're a Corsican dwarf. Corsica is like the sister's place in Paris. It's an island that the Italians dumped on the French a few years before. And you're a dwarf. And you know dwarfs, they only get laid in porn movies and they never get laid otherwise. They're constantly frustrated. So there you go. So he's a Corsican dwarf and his name is Napoleon. And what Napoleon does is that he realizes 1789. Normally, I wouldn't stand a chance. I would just hate myself. But I'm not an aristocrat, so I actually benefit from the revolution. So he joins the French army already in 1789. And by 1795, he's a fucking general because all the other generals had long aristocratic names. So their heads were chopped off. So the Corsican, nobody kills the Corsican dwarf. It's a wonderful thing to be underrated. When I'm invested in tech startups today, I invest in Kenyan lesbians from Dubai. Because they're the most underrated, probably doing the best business with the best profit on the planet. Because they're just as hungry as anybody in Silicon Valley, they're just underrated. So, Napoleon falls the ranks and he steps out at the Romare Rebellion in 1800 in Paris and says that, listen guys, you're killing yourselves, you're killing each other, you're all going to die unless I step in and take over power completely and become your dictator. And they have no option. It's like self-loving, it's just that you have to accept it. So they gave everything to Napoleon, and Napoleon understood what was going on here. He built an army, and the army was constructed like this. You put Napoleon at the top, you have the officers here, you have sub-officers here, and you have the cannon fodder down here, and you think all armies look like that? Yeah, except in Napoleon's army, everybody could read and write. He knew that this was not about the French Revolution. This was about what reading and writing does to society, and how it needs a new storytelling to make sense. He was the ultimate individual. So when Hegel wrote about him the next year in 1807, I, mean, I think the Poland plundered Germany in 1806, it was the end of the world, all the girls were raped, all the young boys were killed. And still Hegel wrote in 1807, in the foreword to the Phenomenology of the Spirit, which is one of the most important books ever, he wrote in the foreword, Napoleon is the shit. I don't care if you Germans suffered last year. He's the shit, he's the thing. We call him Zeitgeist. The first time that term is used in philosophy. A new concept. A person who personifies the spirit of the time. The ultimate individual. And Napoleon turned everybody in his army into individuals responsible for what they did through reading and writing. And he just gambled on this one thing. If I can teach a soldier how to read and write, it's going to be a hundred times more merciless at killing than he would if he didn't. He's going to be a better murderer. And he was right. Because you're just way, way, way more capable when you have access to more information. When he came to the walls of Berlin, the Prussian army could only report. How long can you report but you can only shout? 30 meters? There's somebody's coming, and then the information dies. In Napoleon's army, you could report all the way from Berlin back to Paris and from Paris back to Berlin. Because everybody in the entire chain could read and write. And he beat the shit out of them. 
He knew more about the Prussian army than the Prussian generals knew themselves. It's all about information. But what happened then after Hegel, Hegel was massively successful. One of those philosophers was popular while he was alive. That's really rare. Right? So but after Hegel wrote this in 1807, the idea spread. And Hegel's best friend, talking on main networks, was, was, was the minister, Humboldt, he was the minister of education in Germany in Prussia in 1807. So they invented the Hochschule. They invented the university system for the first time. And they just realized, if we teach everybody in a society to read and write, we can just copy Napoleon's army and create institutions. Nation states, bureaucracies, factories, corporations, hospitals with a Dr. Napoleon at the top who walks around his white coat fucking all the nurses. And he decides whether you're sick and whether you're kind of sick or not. You don't get to decide that. That's up to Dr. Napoleon. The police force, even prisons were run according to the system. Every institution that we tie to the nation state structure is built on an organization idea called Napoleon's army. And then radio television came along in the 20th century, and this model became incredibly efficient. The most dangerous time ever in history is when we had only radio but not television. That's when we had Hitler, and we had Stalin, and we had Rwanda in the 1990s. Societies with radio without television are by far the most dangerous societies we ever had. You can mass slaughter hundreds of thousands of people in weeks with only nice. Thankfully, we got television and softened down a bit. Because once you see a guy like Hitler, you get a little more suspect about him. He's just like, hey, maybe I shouldn't trust the guy. But as long as you only hear him on the radio, it's like, yeah, I want to do what he does. And he's, a, he's a fucking dick. I'm going to follow him. So this structure worked wonderfully until the late 1980s. Because information has flowed this way, top down. Then the fucking internet came along. Like the cart here, underrated. Oh, it's just another media technology. So when I started working with it in 1990, essentially television companies would call me, we have the internet now, and we're going to create a web page, and then we're going to market our TV shows so people watch more TV shows. Oh, it's just a marketing tool, you think? I don't think it is. I think it's a fucking monster that's going to kill you. <laughs> I mean, everybody wanted the internet to make money for them. I said, no, no, the first thing the internet's going to do, at least the first 20 years, this fucking hydra is going to kill you all because you communicate the wrong way in the new society. You still think you're going to do it top down. What the internet does is that it enables little 17-year-old schoolgirls with smartphones in their hands to communicate directly with each other. So the cannon fodder in Napoleon's army starts talking directly to each other. And they talk for about an hour a day. And they probably still talk about Napoleon, what kind of dress he has, or he goes to bed with. He's just sleeping with women or men or dogs or whatever, you know. They gossip and they go and babble about absolutely nothing for two hours a day. And then they're on their smartphones and their laptops for three hours a day and four hours a day and five hours a day, and six hours per day, and we just passed seven hours per day of consumption of smartphone and laptop screens in Western Europe. We're on our way to eight hours. And this includes old ladies in retirement homes and newborn babies. So the average with you is probably more like 10 hours. If you're 19 years old, it's more like 12 hours. And the next generation of virtual reality computer games is going to make it 14 hours. We're never out of the internet. We see it in our lives. We're there all the time. We just don't see the addiction. We're like alcoholics. You sit, you sit, you know, you're like you're, you're one of the parks here in Stockholm. You sit and drink, and everybody else around you is drunk. It's like Peter and me last night. When you get drunk, you don't think you're an alcoholic, and you're drunk when somebody else is drunk. You're just happy until you try to go and flirt with somebody who's not drunk, and they tell you, "Oh, you're fucking drunk. I don't want to have sex with you. Go away." You know. <laughs> then you realize you're an alcoholic. You have a problem. You cannot realize that in a society where everybody's addicted to the internet constantly. Our lives are there. That means 
they have to follow different rules than living in a city or living in a village. So what are the rules on the internet? Look at the structure. It's fucking flat. It's a woman. <laughs> it's a disaster for men. It's flat. This is what women love. Women are online constantly. 95% of the divorces in Sweden today between the age groups of 25 to 35 are women leaving their husbands. You know why? The woman comes home and she's trying to do her little life jigsaw, like working half time, having a kid, you know, working on herself, maybe going to Thailand with her Instagram account to show off to her girlfriends that she's in Thailand now or whatever. So the people live in this environment. They live in, the women live in this environment. And she comes home and she's like 29 years old, thinking of having a second baby. And she goes home and she finds her husband. And he's sitting there, you're my everything. You're my everything. You're my queen. You're my everything. What? You don't have any friends? No, I don't have any friends. I only have you. I have 600 fucking girlfriends. I have a rich social life. I live life to the fullest. I have my own blog. What the fuck am I going to do with you? I'm leaving. <laughs> and it's not like it was good in bed the last year, right? He's a fucking boy. He's just sitting there waiting for somebody to give him an order. Isn't there a factory somewhere so I can get an order? Or can I join the military so I can get an order? No, he's just sitting there like a boy waiting for somebody to give him an order. Because he's programmed to be that way because he was born that way in the original tribe. It's a disaster for men. It's good for the men who do technology. They're at the top. They have a huge female dominated middle class today. And they're screaming and bitching about the guys at the top. It's, the guys at the top, it's called feminism. They don't even want to see the bottom, which we have to remind them of. This is a huge new male underclass. That's why Donald Trump won the election. And they're getting resentful and bitter because they can't find their way. Because we're training them to be individuals. And they're not. They want to be in a team of brothers. And the teams aren't there. It's, it's, it's cruel and tragic in the deepest sense. So, what we need to do, and so you can wipe this off, is that we have to find a whole new model. <laughs> and that one is called tribal mapping. So, what I want to do, thank you, yeah, yeah, yeah please. What I want to do is to use the data from data anthropology, observe men and women, and try to find another map, how we can orientate ourselves, and because we lived in the tribe and had up to 200 members, why don't we go looking for the tribe of contemporary data? and develop a new model, and we can kill individualism. To begin with, we can kill individualized psychotherapy. Every shrink you go to says, you're like everybody else, you're a man. So let's pick your life together, make sure you got a job, support yourself, and not take the wrong pills against your diagnosis, and off you go. Thank you, thank you, that's fine. So, what have we found so far? And will you please help me speculate, because philosophers speculate, that's one of the wonderful things we do. We, we speculate, we can speculate wildly, we can present wild ideas. A good philosopher is not a guy who gets it right. A good philosopher guy has a really wild, crazy idea that's different. So, this is the funny thing I discovered. Our book is going to come out in August, and I know it's going to be highly, highly, highly controversial for the same reason the philosophers get controversial, they're misunderstood. Women are going to find the book incredibly offensive, especially if they endorse contemporary feminism and all its faults and defects. I'm saying that right now. Be prepared for that. But there's not a single word of misogyny in our book. I don't hate women at all. I love women, but I love women. I don't like girls. I don't like girls in women's bodies. I love men, but I don't like boys in men's bodies. And we shouldn't. We have to race to the heroic. And the first thing to race to the heroic is to go through a rite of passage and become a man. 
or become a woman and be a real grown-up. Okay, what we discover then is that there's actually two different structures to the original tribe. This is both from data, for example, from Inuits in northern Canada, from New Guinea, Botswana we looked at. So we both look at original tribes in that sense, you know, the last remnants of the tribe, can we find something there? And then we look at contemporary human beings who live in city environments and are online 10 hours a day. So we judge, we, we compare, and then we discover, as soon as we find something that's the same pattern, it's probably tribal. And what we then discovered is that women orientate themselves towards a very tight inner structure, like this. We call it the inner circuit. That means if you're a woman, you're going to have a tough time with your sisters. They're going to be at you all the time. Women nag at each other all the time, but they don't kill each other. They mob each other and bully each other really hard. They're fierce with each other. Every, all the data shows that. And they're ruled by really fierce older women with loads of wisdom called the matriarch. We guys are out here. Spread out, little hunting teams, warrior teams we needed, the few shamans running around, high on drugs or whatever. But we call this the outer circuit. And you get the picture. This whole thing also is then on the move. It's like moves slowly, it has to move. And the patriarch is in charge of that. And you could basically see that the patriarchy and the matriarchy are in constant debate with each other on what the priorities are. And they have two different types of telling the story to nail that. Now, if you're the matriarch, what is going to be your biggest asset? in the negotiation with the patriarch. Social competence? Hmm? Social competence? No. Yes, you have all the beautiful girls, and they follow you. And when you study, for example, in contemporary data, we go into sex workers' worlds. And then we discover that actually young women who work as sex workers hate moms. They hate madams. They prefer a pimp, a male pimp. He's kinder to them than madam is. Older women who rule over other women are incredibly fierce, and they have to be. They got this nagging little mobbing confused group of women here. The matriarch, when I studied her for the book, is a really scary figure. He said, I really have to deal with women in my, you know, my shape of women and my strong mother and all that. I have to deal with that because I'm confronted with a very charismatic, very, very strong character. Matriarch so Her storytelling would then be her main interest that if these girls get pregnant constantly all the time all over the place, it's a mess for her and she's not in control. That's why when girls sit together or women sit together and have a conversation over a glass of white wine before they go to the bar on a Friday, their menstruation cycles start to go into each other. So the women benefit from sex being controlled. That means they want to have the whole goods delivered first and guarantees and safety and everything, and then they open up and want to have four guys at the same time. Essentially how female sexuality operates. It's perfectly logical. Because once she has that sex, endorsed by the matriarch, during a ritual in the tribe, she really wants to get pregnant. Because her status among the other women is if she becomes one of the pregnant women. Because the pregnant women have the highest status. The oldest women and the pregnant women have the highest status. And if you don't get pregnant, you're an outcast. They bully you really hard. You better be good at baby deliveries or something else, or diaper production or whatever. You need to get a role quickly within that system. Now, what, what kind of storytelling would you have where this is the central focus? It is the central focus of the tribe. The women win. We serve them. Because they provided something we cannot do, which is reproduction. They give birth to babies. They don't really have to focus on anything else. You really don't have to put any other job inside the matriarchy and the inner circuit except that, because that's half the work human beings do. 
Well, they love calendars. Then you look at data. Uh, who's good at remembering birthdays? 99% of birthday celebrations come from women and not from men. You have the evidence and the data. Women love calendars, they love birthdays, they love repetition. We should have this Christmas exactly like the last Christmas. I got everything with me, we're gonna put it all up here and then we're gonna celebrate exactly like we do every year. Don't change a thing. Conservatism, yeah, but it's upholding the whole system. That's why women, when they don't like something, they say, ban it, take it away, I don't wanna see it. Female politicians, they love new laws. Ban it, I don't like it, ban it, I don't wanna see it. Not in front of me. I'm going to walk here and I'm going to be pregnant. I'm going to be a queen. So you're going to celebrate me. And I don't want to see anything I don't like to see. Serve me. Not jerky. Incredibly powerful. So what does a patriarch deal with? Well, he's then left with the matriarch. He's like, your fucking job is to provide provision, hunting, for example, and protection. Here you walk around in smaller circles. You pick berries and things like that. Women are much better at seeing the difference between red and blue colors, which is necessary for picking the right berries. So they pick berries. And the guys out here are out hunting. And if the guy doesn't come home and put a big boar on there, he's not getting laid at the ritual. So we're competing in teams on who's the first to put his dick into the most beautiful pussy and we get back to the ritual in the tribe. Tinder. The data's there. So... We're basically orientating ourselves according to these two models. Now, here's the funny thing. Jordan Peterson is right about there's not a spectrum for gender as such. So 95% of the population in the data are very, very comfortable at being men or women. Now, there's in every population we measure about a 5% who are like, oh, I'm floating in between. They're androgynous. No. Imagine this is your plan, and you've got access to all these human beings, and they do exist for a reason, otherwise they wouldn't be around today. In that sense, we're all evolutionary winners. Where would you put androgynous people? Well, I just say to a couple, say you've got a straight couple, they're married, and they have their first crisis after like three years, and it's like, okay, we need to go in couple therapy, get a gay guy. They're totally superior to that, you know? So you have the androgynous people here, and there's another androgynous category, which you call the shamanic gene, that we find here. And these are the lost boys and the lost girls. Warrior monks, field priests, all those categories at the outskirts. Why are they here? They're connecting this tribe with the other tribes. You're in a constant warfare with the other tribes. There's a very limited resource. There was never a bigger population nomadic society than 3 million on the entire planet. There wasn't an abundance of food because no food was produced. You had to hunt for absolutely everything. You had to go and search and find absolutely everything and collect everything you wanted to eat. And you had to be on the move all the time to find a safe place where you could reside. And probably the matriarch is bitching and saying, nine months from now after the ritual, my girls are going to deliver. We better be in a really good place, really safe and protected, tons of provision, because then we're going to celebrate the children are coming out. Because she had to maximize the survival rate of young women. And she had to maximize the survival rate of children. So you have a storytelling, a religion, that says everything's circular and comes back to the same point. That is the tribal religion. And it has only one addition. There's a parallel storytelling that eventually develops into what we call monotheism. And it's this, the move of the tribe. I talked yesterday about Moses and the Israelites. Perfect example of an authentic phallus. Moses does not sit in Memphis in Egypt and say, 
I'm thinking of going to the promised land. What do you think of that? Well, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about going to the promised land? No, he just said, I'm going to go to the promised land. And he didn't say, oh, well, we shouldn't go through the Red Sea. There might be a storm or wind. It's actually sea. We might drown. No, he said, we're going to go through the Red Sea. I know it's impossible. We'll do it. And you guys love it, don't you? It's dick. It's phallus. So you have to have a parallel storytelling. This is a storytelling told at the fires when the hunting teams are out there with men and a few lesbians in them. And these teams, when they're out there, they have a storytelling that says, we're going to get from here to there. Because the entire tribe has to move. It is circular here. It's obsessed with the intrigues and the gossiping and everything and about child rearing and diapers and everything. But it has to be moved. So we have to force these women with us and move the whole fucking thing. Otherwise, they die. We die with them. And they're never going to thank us for it. Every feminist I met hates the army and is a pacifist. And I'm like, you have no idea what we men have done to protect you bitches so you're around <laughs> still and give birth to your fucking babies? Because for 5,000 years we protect you. Okay, it's other men who fight, but we protect you against other tribes constantly. That's what we do when we're out here. And we die. We die constantly. We kill ourselves for the cause. For the story of pulling everything in the direction of the dick. Does this make sense? Yeah. It does, huh? I have quite a lot of data to prove it, and I'm going to find more data to prove it, and then throw it into the arms of sociologists and see if they want to deal with these hypotheses and build on it. Because to me, this is totally superior to teaching individualism. To me, this is the way out of the current deadlock with interpassivity and narcissism and the idea that we're all going to be on a theater stage getting seen by somebody. Because what people are longing for is not even a female gaze, they're longing for the male gaze. Because the womanly gaze doesn't mean anything to you when you're grown up. Because your mother will always tell you that you love you regardless of what happens. You get the tit anyway. The nanny state will give you the tit anyway. The hamburger chain will give you the tit anyway no matter what happens. You're still loved. It doesn't mean anything to us when we're grown up. What we want when we're grown ups, we want the phallic love. We want the love of fathers. And it's hard earned. Because it's tied to reality. And that's what happens and should happen in our lives at about one year of age. And we're dysfunctional today. At about one year of age. This is Julia Christopher, the leading female psychoanalyst who wrote a brilliant book called The Power of Horrors in the 1980s. It's kind of prophetic to our book now. And she wrote in this book and said that we always believe that the mother's pushing away the baby at about one year of age when the teeth are growing in your mouth. No, she's not. All our studies show that women do not push away the babies at all. They keep the babies at the teeth for as long as they possibly can because they like it. It is an incestuous relationship. It's sexual. She loves having a tit sucked by a baby. Ah. Yeah, no, I don't want to fuck you. I want the baby to suck my tit. <laughs> Until the baby is lured away from the tit. So if you want to talk about absent father syndrome, we should really talk about absent father syndrome. Because if you have a relationship to your fathers, your father and other men, that they somehow mystically enter your life for about one year of age, and they represented the grown-up life. And what is the grown-up life? It's autonomy and independence and freedom and responsibility, Jordan Peterson's keyword. And it's about one year of age we get that first reaction. Why? Because our dad walks into the room naked with a big dick. <laughs> and our dick is tiny. I want that big dick because mommy wants that in her pussy. She doesn't want this. How can I get that? You'll get it one day if you imitate me and learn how to be a grown-up. 
And that's what childhood is. Childhood is the tit there, they provided for there. And at the other end here, childhood is the phallic, the, you know, the, the impossible, the real promised land. The real promised land. I will one day have a dick like my dad. You know? And you were striving for it. Now childhood is just imitating this. We're like pretending we're doing everything that dad and the other men do so we can one day do what they do. And one day, like 12, 13 years, it's that summer when suddenly all the dicks grow and you're like, yeah, finally get a big dick and I get a pussy, you know? And then you realize you also have to have that in your head, which is the next problem. And that's called the teenage rebellion. Now, these things don't work in contemporary society with the vast majority of people simply because the phallic intrusion doesn't happen at one year of age. Why? Because the vast majority of children are located in an environment with 99% women. That's the problem. So the phallic intrusion has to be restored to then lead to the teenage rebellion, which is, of course, completed with the right of passage. With the right of passage, you say, that's a rebellion against the phallus itself, against that, that I am now phallus. Or if you're a woman, I am now matrix. I'm ready to be an independent, responsible, but autonomous human being as a member of the tribe. But once we get there, once we have that function in place, the absent phallus syndrome is sort of solved, the phallic happens. And, and please note that the phallus is luring the child. It's seducing the child away from the tip. It doesn't force it away from the tip. It doesn't work. No, you lure it away. You basically say to the child, isn't it a bit boring to sit there all day long and suck that fucking tit and live in a fairy tale world where everything is made up and you love regardless of how much you shit in your pants? You know, wouldn't it be more fun to be with me like the grown-ups in the tough real world where we go through adventures and challenges all the time and we grow with them until we become the big fellas? <laughs> and of course, I, that, my dad did that to me. I'm just like, I want to be a now and a big dick now. You know, it worked, at least for me. But I know a lot of guys around the world didn't work. They didn't imitate their dads. They didn't go through that when they were kids. And a lot of kids said they don't. And the 17-year-old boys today in society, they, they don't at all. So that has to work. But once that works and you come out of that, we cannot leave the matriarchy here. That's for women to study. Perfectly, we'll leave that to women sociologists. I think we should study this. So what we have here is we have these groups. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to finish it off with this. So my point here when I'm finishing it off is this. These groups do not consist of warriors or hunters or whatever that are the same. If you're going to have a really, really great team and maximize the chances of being successful fighting an external enemy or successful in hunting to deliver to the girls you get fucked in the ritual, okay, if you're going to be successful with these two strategies, you need a complementary roles. So the thing I'm looking for now in data is tribal mapping. Archetypes. What kind of man are you? What kind of boy were you? What were you fostered to be? And what should you have been? Did you have, not only your dad, but did you have other men around you? To me, my, I love my dad, but I'm much more my uncle than my dad. I had my uncle around me. He was like a second father to me because he was the professor of theology and philosophy, and that's how I learned that I could think. So you have different, you should have a multitude of fathers around you when you grow up, and they Sort of what, what then jumps out of this is the fact that you get to know your archetype. And this is the interesting thing. If you're narcissistic, you think you can invent your archetype, and you can be your archetype and pretend it. But we're not. The biggest asset at the start of joining a team of brothers is that your brothers will define what kind of archetype you are, what kind of role do you serve. And you know you found it 
when you realize, I am this little guy here, and I only know how to do one thing, and all the other guys are so fucking brilliant at what they do, like swimming in ice wakes or whatever they do in the morning, right? They do these brilliant things, okay, but I can admire them for it without envy, because I'm going to be a team with them, because I'm going to be brilliant at what I'm brilliant at, and that's how I contribute. So when everybody in the group finds their respective contributive role, you get a team. A team of collaboration instead of competition. There's no competition in this team. It's just collaboration. Otherwise, you die. When you slept these last two nights in the military tent in the Swedish winter, sorry for being late for winter this year, you were that team. You slept with other brothers next to you. This is how most of the time men slept in these teams. And we're going to resurrect that because men are comfortable with that. In this team, you find your archetype, you find the contributor role, you find who you should be within the tribe and how you can serve. And that's what we love to do. Thank you, thank you so much for your patience. You've been listening to Conversations on Masculinity with Manifesto. We enjoy good discussions, but far more importantly, we are a real community with plenty of opportunities for you to engage online and in person. So check out our website on manifesto.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed the content here, then please share this podcast with a friend. Thanks.